The following program is brought to you by Caltech. So ultraviolet absorbs in generally very shallowly into materials. So the next two um, tutorials are going to be concerning about uh, that aspect of ultraviolet detection or reflection or absorption. And uh, Dr. Michael Hoink of JPL will address uh, the first issues. All right, well, uh, <clears throat> thank you very much, Shole. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, so the, the name of this uh, tutorial, I guess, is What's on the Surface? And uh, I'm going to start off by talking about um, the physics and chemistry of delta-doped surfaces as an entree into uh, detector technologies for UV instruments. Um, uh, so I'll start off talking about detector surfaces and the problem of stability. And this has been a problem that has been long-standing in detector technology, as you'll see. I'll talk about delta-dope detectors, the physics, uh, uh, the chemistry of the silicon-silicon dioxide interface, and then how the physics and chemistry uh, relate to uh, convey the main message of this talk, which is uh, that in order to get the best um, uh, detector that you can, you really need to get control over the interface on the atomic scale. Um, so I love this image. This is, uh, this is, of course, the Pillars of Creation. It's the iconic image out of Hubble Space Telescope uh, that uh, Paul Scohan is responsible for. So. It was a pleasure to hear Paul talking this morning about uh, the future of UV technology. Um, and I put it up uh, here for another reason, is that uh, the, the, these iconic images that came from Hubble were not actually taken by particularly good UV detectors by the standards of today, at least. Um, uh, surprisingly, the, uh, the detectors uh, on Hubble uh, with PIC2 had an efficiency of only around 10% or so throughout the UV, and that was because they used front-illuminated devices coated with lumogen, which is a, a fluorescent material, and basically down-converts the photons into the visible where you can see them, but it's, uh, it's not very efficient, and it's uh, also not very good for other reasons as well. Um, so, in order to get to uh, why that happened, we need to understand a little bit about detector uh, architecture. And there are two main architectures uh, for detectors that are out there today. Within that, within that there's a lot of uh, 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 variation in the types of devices, but they, they differ in terms of the readout architecture. In all cases, you have photons coming in and interacting with the detector material to produce charge carriers, and the, the business of detection is to convert those charge carriers into electrical signals. In a CCD, um, you have an array of detectors that uh, conceptually act like buckets. They're little potential pockets where you collect charge, and the charged location is correlated with the location where the photon hits. And then you, in order to read it out, you shift the charge out in a serial manner and everything goes to a single output register. Um, the advantage of this is all of this charge manipulation has taken place in the analog domain. It's very low noise and everything's read out by the same detector so you get a high precision 
measurements. Um, CCDs, on the other, I mean, sorry, CMOS detectors, on the other hand, are uh, a more of a digital imaging uh, domain where the photons come in, they create electrons that land within the pixels, and within each pixel there is a little uh, charge detection circuit. And these are more amenable to kind of parallel readouts and digital signal processing. Um, they are not, as of now, as low noise as CCDs, but they're making rapid progress. Um, the particular variations of detector technologies that are becoming available now, and I think you'll hear a lot more about it later on, um, is that now these solid state detectors are coming out with versions that are capable of photon counting. And photon counting puts you in a whole nother uh, regime of signal to noise and especially uh, sensitivity at the limits of low photon fluxes. Um, but what I want to talk about is actually common to all of these detectors, which is that in order to optimize the response of these to get high quantum efficiency, wide spectral range, um, uh, good uh, spatial resolution in terms of modulation transfer function, you need to go to back illuminated. And the reason is very simple. All of the circuitry that goes into these devices in order to manipulate the charge and to form the images uh, involves layers of material that are put on top of the silicon. There's uh, polysilicon gates, there's oxides, there's metals, and all of that exists between the light source and the silicon. And in order to really get high resolution, um, uh, high quantum efficiency, wide spectral range, you need to get that out of the way. The way to do that is to flip the device over and illuminate from the back. Um, that actually was done on the Hubble Space Telescope that was originally supposed to launch in 1984. This is a picture of the uh, wide field camera one, uh, fully assembled, and actually they were doing the final checkout tests uh, on this instrument when they discovered uh, that their detectors had a serious problem. They exhibited this phenomenon called quantum efficiency hysteresis, so that they were unstable to, this, to the degree of like 50% variations of quantum efficiency depending on what happened. And this actually, this little tube here is actually a retrofit that was added to the instrument in order to try and stabilize it with what they call the UV flood process. Um, that never worked that well, they, despite a massive effort to try and correct this stability problem, and uh, simultaneously they started developing WIFPIC-2 as a replacement for WIFPIC-1, and they tried to develop detectors that would remain stable in the illuminated configuration, and ultimately uh, they couldn't do it. That's why uh, Hubble flew with front illuminated devices. Um, this is actually some more recent images from Wide Field Camera 3, and it shows detector technology has advanced uh, uh, enormously since then. There are all kinds of ways to do back illuminated passivation now. These are actually state-of-the-art devices that were flown on Wide Field Camera 3, and they're still seeing quantum efficiency hysteresis uh, on the order of several percent to the extent that they're actually modifying the, uh, the Hubble observing strategy so that periodically they have to flood the devices with visible light in order to fill traps and stabilize the response. So uh, it all comes down to surfaces. And uh, so now I'm going to talk about the problem of stability, how it relates to the surface. 
Um, so this is a cartoon of a detector where I'm trying to relate the physical structure of the detector to the electronic structure uh, inside the detector. And for physical structure, we're looking at, these are the gate structures that I talked about on the front side of the device for manipulation of charge. Uh, detectors are typically fabricated on a uh, high purity epilayer, uh, usually uh, P minus silicon. Um, and uh, beneath that is a uh, photo insensitive substrate. It's insensitive because it's usually highly doped and the lifetimes are too short to actually detect anything. Um, but electronically what it looks like is in the, near the front, near the gate structure uh, where you're detecting the charge is a, is a, a potential well where the charge accumulates. And uh, that potential well extends a certain distance into the detector. And then at the substrate epilayer interface, there is a small bump in potential as you go from uh, uh, P minus silicon to P plus silicon. It's a, it's a high quality interface in that it's, it's a um, fully crystalline material. And the only thing you're doing is you're going from uh, very low concentrations of dopant, you know, something 10 to the 13 uh, per cubic centimeter up to very high concentrations. And that is enough to give that little bump. The, I, the, but the reason why this is significant is because it's a high quality interface, it's not a, not a significant source of noise in the detector in the form of uh, uh, interface generated dark current. And yet, it, as the right uh, configuration in order to encourage carriers not to go into the substrate, but instead to go into the collection well. So in order to back illuminate, though, you have to get rid of this substrate in order to enable the light to impinge upon the silicon directly. And the problem that you've created for yourself is whereas before you had this nice crystalline interface between P, P minus and P plus silicon, now you've got a bare silicon surface. It's poor quality surface. It's got lots of defects. And typically what happens is it ends up with a positive charge on it, and you end up with trapping of charge at the back surface. And even worse than that, as they saw on Hubble, is that you get uh, quantum efficiency hysteresis, which is as you shine light on this uh, detector and some of the charge gets trapped, trapping of charge actually alters the potential distribution. The width of that well changes and your quantum efficiency starts to vary all over the place depending on what the detector has seen. So you need a way to stabilize that, and what you need is, is a magic layer that will recreate the potential um, uh, that was there previously with the thick substrate, except that it's gotta be thin enough to be transparent, and it also cannot allow any defects that remain at that surface to start generating noise and degrade the performance of the detector detector. And finally, uh, well, let's see, one more thing. Ideally, you would also like to be able to bias the back surface. Uh, uh, some of you may know about fully depleted devices. This becomes critical for the high purity devices that they're using for extended near-infrared response, which uh, is not the subject of this workshop. And then finally, you want to um, put an anti-reflection coating to minimize reflection losses. So here's another uh, cartoon of the band structure of the device talking about trapping a photo-generated charge. Um, Hubble actually needed to have stability to better than 1% over 30 days, obviously didn't achieve that. 
Um, and the key was to find a way to passivate the, the surface defects and to pin that, those bands the back surface. Um, this is a cartoon kind of illustrating quantum efficiency hysteresis. This is the, um, the near the back surface, the potential well, and the electrons can get trapped there. And the, the, as, as it fills up, the, uh, the uh, surface potential changes, and the quantum efficiency does as well. And what you want is to be able to charge up the surface um, to get uh, uh, favorable electric field. And that's what they did with the UV flood process. Since then, there have been a very large number of um, ways to passivate back surfaces, including surface doping techniques, chemical charging techniques, phosphor coatings, chemisorption is another way of, of chemically embedding a charge in the surface. Sorry about that. Let's see. Um, ion implantation is the one that's flying on with wide field camera three right now. Um, there's one more um, um, that uh, is coming up now that uh, isn't on this list, and that's a, that's a boron coating of the surface. Um, uh, I didn't put it on the list because uh, as of now, it's not compatible with uh, uh, fully processed devices. It requires too high of a temperature. Um, the other aspect of uh, stability um, that is also related to surface is um, uh, UV degradation of devices. And this has been a long-standing problem. Even, even if you solve the surface problem, you've passivated the defects, you've uh, uh, charged up the surface so that you get high efficiency, over time, uh, UV photons have enough energy to break bonds and create charge in the surface where none existed before and the performance of uh, devices degrades over time. This is another one, and it has to do with um, various defects that exist in silicon dioxide and uh, that serve as charge traps. And silicon dioxide is actually notoriously vulnerable to radiation damage um, effects. And so what you would like to have is a surface passivation technique that is insensitive to um, surface defects so that you're not going to have degradation when um, you're uh, illuminating with UV light. So uh, delta dope detectors, it's a technology that was developed at JPL um, in the early 1990s. Uh, the concept is basically to use uh, uh, crystal growth technique known as molecular beam epitaxy in order to grow uh, uh, crystalline silicon on the back surface with atomic scale control over the dopant distribution. And that is significant because it allows you to embed um, schematically here it's shown as negative charge, but these are ionized boron dopant atoms that are lying within a nominally a single atomic plane located within about a nanometer of the surface. And what that does is it creates a extremely strongly peaked potential near the surface to have a built-in electric field. And it serves as a tunnel barrier separating surface defects from the bulk silicon. And that's significant in order to make you insensitive to these defects that um, are not stable and can accumulate over time. Um, Let's see, I was...
Oh, okay, I wasn't going to talk about that. Let's see. Go back, come on. All right, so here's another um, diagram. This is the conduction band edge for different dopant profiles. And what you see is that uh, delta doping provides a potential barrier height of almost an electron volt, which is enormous. And the, the reason why it's so high, you, I mean, you don't get uh, from doping barriers this high ordinarily. The reason is because the confinement of the dopants to within a single atomic layer like that creates a quantum well within the silicon so that um, uh, it basically acts like a two-dimensional atom. And it is screened by free holes, but this, it, the spatial extent of the whole wave functions is such that, that the screening can only take place over the length scale of nanometers. And within that uh, cloud of holes, the potential becomes very high. Here's the electric field. Um, and uh, the, uh, the electric field near the delta dope layer approaches uh, uh, 10 to the seventh volts per, net, volts per centimeter, which is enormous. Um, the result is, here's the quantum efficiency of delta dope detectors, and it shows that it is reflection limited throughout the entire spectral range all the way from soft x-ray to uh, the visible. Uh, the significance of reflection limited is that basically the only loss that's left is reflection from the surface and it shows you that you are collecting all of the photogenerated electrons in the detector, even those that are generated extremely close to the surface, which uh, is significant because um, right in this region the, the absorption length is only about four nanometers. Um, stability is, uh, as I showed, at least as important as quantum efficiency in UV detectors. And the, uh, this has been measured actually both by John Trauger, who was the uh, project scientist for WIFPIC2, and also by the uh, uh, Kepler group at NASA Ames. And, um, uh, as far as anyone has been able to measure, there is no quantum efficiency hysteresis in delta dope detectors. JPL's recently invested in delta doping to make it possible to do delta doping at full wafer scale. So now we can do, uh, we have a eight inch MBE with multi eight inch wafer capacity. Uh, and we've got uh, glove boxes attached for processing of surfaces pr for prior to MBE, robotic cluster tool. So now we're going to be able to make detectors in quantities sufficient that we can conceive of putting them on um, uh, missions and instruments, such as uh, um, Paul's instrument, where he wants something on the order of 500 to 1,000 detectors in one telescope. Um, so finally, uh, the quantization of states uh, around the delta layer is well known. This is a, this is a 1996 era paper where they actually studied the uh, quantization of the whole states near a delta layer. And it basically, um, this potential created by the uh, uh, delta layer looks like this. And here are the whole states that uh, screen the, uh, the layer. And the, the significance is that the delta layer is abrupt to a scale of uh, a few atomic layers, and the whole wave functions are spread out over several nanometers. Um, 
The other aspect of this that's important for stability is that if you start to, and this is within the model, if you put a, a significant uh, uh, concentration of positive charge on the surface in order to pull the bands down, what you see is that the bands in this near surface area will vary, but the bands over here uh, don't change at all. So this is what I call quasi-isolation after John Bardeen's 1947 paper. Basically, you can vary the surface potential as much as you want, and it will not affect the bulk bands. <coughs> and this is true for either positive or negative charge at this surface. Um, the other carrier type, electrons, those are also quantized. This is a, a even older paper, early 60s, I think, where they, they directly measured uh, magneto-oscillatory conductance in a quantized inversion layer in silicon. And uh, more recently, quantization of n-type inversion layer of silicon. And basically, as you put the delta layer close enough to the surface, uh, you start to quantize the electron states as well. So there are the electron states. And that becomes significant in studying the, the delta dope layers. And let's see. So stability, quasi-isolation, quantum exclusion. So now about the silicon-silicon dioxide interface. I mentioned that um, there are all kinds of defects that happen um, and are intrinsic to silicon dioxide layers. And what can happen is that radiation, including deep ultraviolet light, breaks these uh, silicon oxide bonds, creates mobile defects, and creates all these traps and charge centers that can lead to instabilities of the detector. Um, the densities of uh, the states are enormous, and the way that, um, the way that high quality oxides address this is that they, they have hydrogen is ubiquitous in these uh, oxides. And the hydrogen goes in and it binds with the dangling bonds in the silicon and passivates the, the surface. Um, densities of hydrogen are on the order of uh, 10 to the 14 per square centimeter in oxides. And <clears throat> what can happen is, uh, let's see, you've got these PB stinners, which are dangling bonds of the silicon right at the interface. And you've also got oxygen vacancies that can exist in various charged states. Um, and hydrogen passivated oxides are used to get low enough defect densities to make high quality stable MOS devices. But um, trapping of holes can liberate hydrogen ions from the surface and create um, um, charge centers again. And let's see, sorry. Um, <clears throat> so, hole trapping turns out to be significant for the physics and chemistry of delta layers, as, I'll, as I will show. Um, see. So now, we'll start with a kind of uh, uh, interesting observation. Even though you, even though you're putting um, delta doping puts. Uh, charge carriers on levels of 10 to the 14 per square centimeter right next to the surface. If you measure the conductivity of the surface, you find that delta layers, hull uh, measurements of the conductivity show extremely low conductivity. A deep delta layer 
Um, Hall measurement showed 1.2 times 10 to the 14 mobile charge carriers, but a shallow layer shows only 5 times 10 to the 12th, and intermediate um, has uh, actually negative conductivity. So what's going on? So I've done a, um, some modeling of the surface in order to understand the physics and chemistry of delta doping, um, both to understand it and in order to be able to design um, uh, even better uh, devices. And out of this modeling effort has also come some new ideas for um, MBE structures that we're going to be growing on samples. Um, so what happens? This is uh, some modeling showing the conduction band edge near a delta-doped surface as a function of the uh, surface charge. And as you can see, at uh, zero surface charge, the surface well is actually quite shallow. And the higher the surface charge becomes, the deeper that um, surface potential well becomes. And as I mentioned, the bulk still, no matter how much surface charge you get there, still the bulk has uh, uh, got an electric field um, directing electrons toward the uh, front surface. Um, so on the left, we have a plot of conduction band edge versus surface charge for a very shallow delta layer, one nanometer from the surface. And here is a, a delta layer that's two nanometers from the surface. And the difference is that as you get up close to the density, uh, if the surface charge gets close to the density of the delta layer, it starts to pull down the conduction band. With a deeper delta layer, it doesn't. And that, that is because... Um, as, the, as that surface potential well becomes deeper and deeper, you start to create um, concentrations of negative charge in the deeper delta layer, but not the shallow one. Okay, so this is plotting the ground state wave function as a function of surface charge. Out here, the, uh, it's, uh, uh, the surface well is too shallow, and it, it makes a surface resonance, but not a trap. As you get more and more surface charge and the well gets deeper, the, you start to get um, uh, trapped surface states. And, uh, but never, the, the energy of that uh, trapped state never gets down to the Fermi level. It almost does. Over here, with the deeper delta layer, the, uh, um, the uh, energy of the gr electron ground state actually falls below the delta layer, and what you get is a population of electrons in an inversion layer that near the surface. So again, in the shallow delta layer, electrons are excluded quantum mechanically from this area, and all you get is um, the concentration of holes diminishes as the surface charge increases. And effectively what that is is a transfer of charge from the delta layer to the surface. So the surface is actually compensating the, the dopant in the delta layer. Over here, that happens as well until the ground state uh, falls below the Fermi level and you start to get an inversion layer at the surface. And what happens is that from then on, as you continue to increase the surface charge, electrons in the inversion layer actually screen the, that additional field and the whole concentration around the delta layer stabilizes. This actually 
compares hull coefficient and conductivity as a function of surface charge, and it explains that intermediate result whereby um, uh, for a deeper delta layer we actually measure electrons, so we're actually seeing conduction in the inversion layer. Um, and this is showing surface charge as a function of cap layer thickness, and so at very narrow cap layers you never get surface inversion. That's, uh, that's the quantum exclusion. For <coughs> thicker cap layers, you start to get gap states and then surface inversion. And the surprising result here is that the, um, this silicon-silicon dioxide interface can compensate the delta layer to um, levels that um, are essentially not reported in the literature. All the literature that you read about silicon-silicon dioxide traps has to do with high-quality oxides for MOS devices. Here we're dealing with just a native oxide that forms on the, on the vac surface of a delta-dope detector. And you don't have access to the kind of um, process conditions you would need to produce a, um, a uh, thermal oxide. Uh, that's one. And second, even if you did, you would be vulnerable to radiation damage introducing traps again. So the fact that we're getting traps on this level to compensate the delta layer is interesting and useful for de designing improved layers for um, even better performance. But it's also uh, a testament to the fact that the, the gaining atomic scale control over that interface with the delta doping makes you insensitive to uh, traps at the surface because the delta layer is actually acting as this tunnel barrier against transfer of charge between the bulk and the surface and um, explains and in some sense the stability results that we've seen with delta dope detectors. So uh, the, uh, the upshot of all this is really that um, uh, if you get atomic scale control over the interface, you can start to approach um, ideal detector performance and uh, um, get to the point where uh, you can get 100% internal quantum efficiency, low dark currents, wide spectral range that is uh, performance that's necessary for the uh, UV instruments in the next generation. Thank you, Michael. We're going to introduce um, Dr. Frank Greer, who's going to talk about another um, way to, um, another epitaxial technique that will tell us what you can get out of surfaces that naturally aren't friendly. Okay, great. Um, thanks. So I put a lot of names on this slide because um, basically what I'll talk about is um, how we've used atomic layer deposition in a number of different uh, areas. Um, so my, the title of my talk is Atomically uh, Precise Surface and Interface Engineering the Atomic Layer Deposition to Enable High Performance Materials, Detectors, and Instruments. So in addition to talking a little bit about what ALD is, um, I'll t uh, give some of the examples that we've worked on. Uh, there are other people um, even in this room who are uh, working on ALD for other um, 
in other ways, but I wanted to not only show what does work, but some of the things that we found that didn't work along the way, uh, because I think it helps to illustrate um, some of the power of the technique. Um, so as I mentioned, first I'll talk about the technology. I'll talk about um, anti-reflective coatings, um, optical elements like filters, um, in some cases um, superconducting detectors because it helps um, explain some things, surface treatments, and surface passivation. I'll give some acknowledgments right up at the beginning. Um, uh, some work that was done at Novella Systems when I was there. Um, Dr. Chris Hodson from Oxford Instruments, Professor Roy Gordon from Harvard University, and some other JPL groups, which I'll talk about later. Okay, so what is atomic layer deposition? So it's a surface reaction-mediated deposition process. So what that means is, let's say, uh, take the case of a silicon wafer, and what we want to do is grow a film on that. So the first step in this process would be you'd have some sort of surface termination. In this case, I'm showing a surface hydroxyl group, some OH. So that would be something that you would get just by exposing uh, a silicon wafer to room air, in fact. Um, so then we would bring in some sort of a reactive precursor molecule. Uh, the one I'm choosing to illustrate here is uh, we're going to be looking at the deposition of aluminum oxide. Um, so uh, in this particular case, aluminum oxide, the precursor that we choose is um, trimethyl aluminum. Um, so this is a liquid. It's actually a pyrophoric compound. So if you expose it to air, it rapidly converts to aluminum oxide, which makes it ideal for this reaction. Um, so what happens is we bring in the trimethyl aluminum. It reacts with that surface hydroxyl group. And then what happens is uh, the reaction stops. Because once you've taken away all the surface H bonds, uh, basically, now what you see is if another precursor molecule comes in, it looks at the surface. It basically, from its perspective, looks like the precursor molecule itself. Uh, so the compound's stable, so it doesn't, essentially there's no further reaction. And so what you do is you expose the surface that you want to coat to this precursor molecule until the reaction is terminated everywhere. Once that's complete, you purge out your reactor system. Uh, all of the gas phase compound is removed, and you're left with this, uh, this surface termination that looks like that. Next step is a, a reaction step. Now, the one I'm choosing to illustrate here is actually a plasma. Uh, what we do, or what one can do, is either um, break up oxygen into um, atomic oxygen or ozone, and then that will react with these methyl groups here. Uh, and what you'll end up with is, again, a surface termination that looks like somewhat like what, was, uh, what we started with, which is an OH. Um, once that's done, you can either turn off the plasma, or if you're using some other reactant, uh, let's say water vapor. That would be another one that you could use to make aluminum oxide. Um, then the reaction stops because basically there's no more methyl um, groups on the surface to react with, and you're left with a, um, a surface, as I mentioned, that looks like the same thing. Then when, if you, so that gives you one atomic layer of aluminum oxide. Now, when you're done, you go back and you try to grow more monolayers to whatever thickness you would desire. And so if we were to look at now plotting the thickness versus the number of cycles, you can see basically what happens is once you start growing, uh, the thickness that you grow is, a, um, is predetermined by the number of cycles that you grow. So effectively, if I want 20, 10 nanometers of a film of aluminum oxide, then I choose this number of cycles. So what are some of the properties and advantages of this technique? Why would you do this? Um, so it's, what happens is that because you are effectively waiting for the surface reaction to terminate everywhere, it's inherently 100% conformal up to very high aspect ratios. So to give an illustration of this, this is actually a metal nitride film in a via that's cut down into, this is silicon dioxide and underlying silicon. Uh, the size of this via is about 0.2 microns, and this aspect ratio is about 12 to 1. 
As you can see, this metal nitride here is actually thick, the same thickness all the way down. And if you look very carefully here at the bottom corner, there's actually the etch process has a little bit of an undercut, which means that um, the film actually is able to get underneath that and coat it exactly the same thickness all the way down. Um, so if you do further uh, surface analysis techniques, so say selective area diffraction or um, compositional analysis, and you pick various places, say on the field, the sidewall and the bottom, effectively the composition and crystallinity of this film are identical throughout the feature. Um, so basically not only are we conformal, but the film properties are uniform through, uh, throughout. Um, and then one last thing that can be th thought of is that uh, because you're not necessarily constrained, um, basically, as long as you are able to expose for long enough, you can code arbitrarily large substrates. Uh, to give you an idea, there are uh, some things that are throughout um, uh, that's actually being commercially used for flat panel displays. Um, you can see here we've actually been able to coat. This is a titanium oxide film that we've coated, and this is a uniformity of a titanitride film uh, across a wafer. So what's about the flexibility of ALD? So if you look at the periodic table, and what I've done is crossed out the elements that are not currently um, in a, uh, an ALD-deposited material. It's not to say that you can get pure metals or uh, pure um, elements of each one of these things, but all of these elements are either incorporated in a metal film, a nitride, an oxide, and fluoride, etc. And what happens, what's happening is that this material list is in constantly increasing as new users or users are explored. And the reason that there's been an explosive growth recently, this was actually a technique that was invented. Originally, it was entitled atomic layer epitaxy. It's actually invented back in the 1970s. But what really made it take off is that if you look at, say, your, um, the best processors that you can buy in the computers that you would have on your desktop, uh, it actually incorporates a hafnium-based um, uh, uh, dielectric material as the gate dielectric. And it's deposited by ALD. And so basically, the semiconductor industry has driven um, the development of equipment, the development of precursors, and the development of ALD technology. And then as, um, as uh, universities become increasingly interested in nanotechnology uh, applications, um, some of the more exotic materials have been um, added to this list as well. So I wanted to give the specific case here for looking at the anti-reflective coatings for UV astronomy. Um, so basically, this is uh, um, going along the lines of what uh, Dr. Hoink was talking about before. Uh, this is to get a little bit more specific. So this is actually a silicon CCD that's been backalluded by using a frame thinning technique. Uh, the reason you do this um, as compared to the, um, uh, the full wafer technique that he was talking about is this is a very uh, quick and rapid thing that you can do. Uh, this is use a silicon nitride hard mask, and you chemically thin down to the um, epi layer. Um, so then what you can do then is actually, after this process is done, this is actually, you, first of all, you delta dope it, and then after you're, you're done with this, then you can place a shadow mask on top, and now you're able to look at uh, anti-reflective coatings. And what, what this technique allows you to do is it actually allows you to uh, generate an internal standard, uh, because you have an uncoated region here that's under the shadow mask and a coated region. And so an example of the data that might look like, and this is, I wanted to contrast a sputtered film versus an um, ALD-deposited film because it shows, again, some of the power of the technique and some of the features of it. Um, so you can see this is the, actually the edge of a shadow mask here, and basically one of the things that makes um, ALD a nice technique to use for this particular application is that relatively thin films are, actually, are required. 
Um, and then to orient you to these, this is our flat field images. This particular one is actually at 300 nanometers. And the idea is that the brighter images uh, have higher quantum efficiency and the darker part has lower quantum efficiency. Um, the, Michael showed this slide before. The one thing I wanted to point out is that this, the delta dope region is actually very close to the surface, as he was pointing out. Um, so we've done all this characterization here at JPL. Uh, this was a, a system uh, that's uh, referred to in this paper by uh, Jacko et al. in 2001. So what about the sputtered films? So this is actually a plot of the quantum efficiency of a sputtered hafnium oxide film um, as a function of wavelength. And you can see that uh, contrary to what we expected in this particular case is that the sputtered film actually has the lower quantum efficiency than the, the, um, the uh, uncoated side. And this is actually something that we saw for sputtered magnesium oxide as well. Um, so the fact that it has, um, in this case, has a uh, less than desirable UV response suggests that there may be something that's taking place at the nanometer length scale, since out here in the visible, there's uh, no issues that are observed. So what we did then is we look at, well, what if we try to use atomic layer deposition as a technique? So um, again, this uh, essentially same uh, test vehicle as CCD here, uh, that we use a, a, a delta dope CCD, excuse me, that's with a shadow mask on it. Um, now, of course, as I mentioned, the ALD technique is conformal, so you in, it's not as uh, nice as the, as the other case where, because it's a line-of-sight technique um, with sputtering, whereas ALD is a conformal technique. So you do get some deposition underneath the shadow mask. But here, unlike the sputtered case, you can actually see that the, um, the brighter side is actually the ALD side. This is the higher quantum efficiency. And so this is actually what we expected. So, um, so what we did then is we actually did some materials analysis techniques to look at some of the reasons why, why that might be taking place. But one thing that's a word of caution here is I started off the talk is why did I choose to focus on some of the things that we've done as opposed to the, um, uh, some of the other things. It's easier to look at some of the things that can take place in, the AL, in ALD. So if we, looked at, if we were just to do um, ALD hafnium oxide so this is a hafnium-containing hafnium precursor followed by an oxygen plasma exposure. And you try to grow that directly on a delta-dope device. As you can see, what actually forms is there's a reaction that takes place between the hafnium precursor and the silicon surface. And so what we would see is a relatively thick amorphous silicate layer, a, a pure hafnium oxide layer. And then here's the silicon underneath. And so if you do some XPS measurements, you can see that there's actually a shift in the binding energy, so it, it does indicate that there's different uh, chemical states uh, that the hafnium is in. But what you look at here is if we say, okay, what we want to do is we want to actually put um, a chemical uh, barrier layer. We can do that. So this is actually PELD hafnium oxide, but, uh, but between that is actually a 2 nanometer thick film of um, ALD aluminum oxide. And so when you do that, this is actually uh, cross-sectional TEM images. So basically what we've done is take a delta-dope silicon uh, wafer, uh, cut that using a focused ion beam, and then polish it so that you can actually get it thin enough so that you can look at uh, it in cross-section. So you can see that the length scale here is actually 20 nanometers. And you can see this is actually the surface native oxide. And then what you see is a, an ALD aluminum oxide layer followed by an ALD hafnium oxide layer. So now if we look at the uh, converse case where we have Actually, wanted to go back one slide. So this is where you have hafnium oxide. You try to grow it directly on the silicon. And this is what happens if you put the aluminum oxide in between. Now, contrasting it, if we look at the hafnium oxide sputtered film, again, uh, the data that we're showing you is that the ALD um, AR coating was significantly better than the sputtered coating. 
And you can see that, first of all, if you look at the ALD film, it's nice, sharp interfaces. So here's your native oxide, there's your ALD aluminum oxide, and there's your ALD hafnium oxide. And then it, but if you look at the sputtered film, you can see that it's quite a bit rougher. Um, the interfaces look r basically roughly the same, but um, essentially it's a lot, quite a bit smoother here. So again, what this ALD technique can give you is that you have the ability to have m uh, more dense, smoother films, and uh, you, you can grow um, multi-layers with very sharp interfaces. So that what that means is you can do things where you can have multi-layer thin films, and you can, if you need to or if you want to, you can have uh, optically transparent, even in the ultraviolet, because you can get extremely thin films, um, but also um, high quality as well. Um, and lastly, because you have this control where, I can, where one can dial in exactly the right thickness for exactly what you want, um, you can essentially have some nanometer control because, uh, especially if you, in the ultraviolet, if you start changing the film thickness, um, even for, over the range of two nanometers, it can change the performance and the peak quantum efficiency. So here's a plot of now quantum efficiency versus wavelength. You can see this is a uh, delta-doped um, CCD reference. This is a, you know, some of the data that we were talking about for the Gallitz detector. Um, and you can see that these are three different AR coatings here. This is a, uh, this um, uh, bilayer stack of aluminum oxide and hafnium oxide, and aluminum oxide of, of one thickness. This is now 16 and a half nanometers. And this thickness right here is actually, or excuse me, this is 16 and a half nanometers, and this is 23 nanometers. And so one might ask the question, well, okay, so you, you show that if you pick this out one time, you can uh, dial in this thickness, and yes, it has the, uh, you're able to shift the peak absorption. But what I wanted to show you is this is actually two different CCDs um, separated on the same system, separated by a month running exactly the same recipe. And you can see within the um, resolution of the measurement, the error bars in the measurement, essentially the, not only are they essentially qualitatively the same, they seem to be quantitatively the same over the entire wavelength range. So basically, you're able to pick out exactly what, um, uh, where you want your peaks to happen, and you can, when you, when you say, I want 16 and a half nanometers, or I want 23 nanometers, you can really actually do that. Um, lastly, this is, again, so, uh, just taking this recipe, scaling the number of cycles, and we were able, this is a model fit to predict where um, the peaks should be, um, and then these are where the actual measured peaks in the quantum efficiency were. So uh, just, this is just to highlight that not only is the ALD a reproducible and accurate technique, but multilayers are feasible when you require either, let's say, in the perhaps the negative case where you want to prevent interactions with the substrate, or for the positive case where you want to create integrated filters, for example, a bandpass. Um, so this, I wanted to sort of put this in. This is a work that was done with uh, um, um, Matt, Matthew Beasley and Brandon Gantner at, um, at University of Colorado. So this is actually some of the work that was done with an indium foil mesh, and this is showing that you can do actual processing on the mesh itself. So this was a, you know, an early case where there was some, uh, let's say, some carbon on or in the filter itself, and we were actually able to do some processing on the filter, and um, the, that carbon was able to be removed. Um, but the point to make this is that, let's say, now this is something very, uh, this is you know, a relatively fragile part you have, or not, I shouldn't say fragile, this is a part that this, um, you have a, an, an indium foil stretched over a mesh, and we were able to actually do processing on it afterwards. And so you could imagine that, so what I've shown here, is that we're actually growing films on live devices. And 
here we're growing film, or we're able to do processing on suspended meshes of materials. So the, the idea is to show that you, know, you can actually do ALD processing on a wide variety of substrates with a wide variety of materials. So you can really um, envision there's a lot of uh, power of this technique to do surface engineering. So one could imagine that if you take, if, if indium is a trans, um, is a material that you can use to screen out different element or different wavelength ranges. You could actually, with the appropriate interfacial layers, you could integrate an indium layer onto a device or um, various different oxide coatings or fluoride coatings on a number of different things. And then this is just a, an illustration. This is actually for submillimeter astronomy, but I wanted to put it in just to show um, some of the things that we're also looking at ALD for. Uh, these are actually, you can make superconducting nitrides. Uh, this is um, this particular ALD film, this is a, a tantalum nitride film, just a, um, in this case, 50 angstroms thick. Um, this is actually, we grew this in collaboration when I was at Novella Systems. Um, but the point is that not only to show that this technique is that you can actually grow films that have interesting properties, um, but this, these, uh, this uh, is uh, production semiconductor equipment where you could do thousands of wafers exactly the same over and over again. Um, so it's a really, it's a robust um, uh, industrial scale technique with a lot of interesting new applications. Uh, one of the last things I want to talk about is we're now looking at it for three nitride detectors, uh, looking at it for doing surface passivation because you think about mesa structures that you might etch in these things. Uh, there would be exposed surfaces and you could look at it as a way to engineer the surface to look at improvements in dark current. Oops, I wanted to say this. So just uh, perhaps to end it with a conclusion, so the benefits of ALD and plasma treatments in general is you can get ultra-thin, highly conformal, and uniform films over, large, over arbitrarily large substrates. And you can have, um, in, in many cases, high-quality films with high density, low roughness, and, and in the cases where you want conductivity, um, that's also a possible. Um, so you have, in addition, angstrom-level control over stoichiometry, interfaces, and surface properties. And so that allows you to grow multi-layer nanolaminates, nanocomposites, and in some cases do low-temperature surface engineering. So you can actually grow on many different uh, types of substrates. In addition to what I've shown, people have grown on polymeric substrates. In fact, there's some just interesting things where people have grown on cloth um, because you're actually able to grow on the fibers itself. And then it's in a funny kind of demonstration. They set fire to the cloth, and what you're left with is actually a ghost-like material of aluminum oxide. Just to show that even for relatively exotic substrates, you can really grow uh, different types of materials on them. So as I mentioned, there's lots of different applications. Things that I didn't talk about, you know, we did talk about anti-reflective coatings. We're looking at it for mirrors, filters, optics, et cetera, superconducting detectors, and surface passivation. And um, wanted to send some acknowledgments. We have some APRA funding as well as uh, JPL R&TD funding. So thanks very much. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.